Crossroads. Wonderful to be back with you again. I think this is the sixth year in a row that Pastor Craig's invited me to come and share with you, and I appreciate him so much. What a godly man, what a wonderful man you have as your pastor here at uh, Crossroads. And I appreciate all that your church is doing. As a matter of fact, your impact, both in Avon and Hendricks County and uh, across uh, the state of Indiana, and for that matter, around the world, is just uh, incredible. And I appreciate it so much and applaud it as well. I want to jump right into our message today because uh, the year 2020 is a very special year. I don't know if you've thought of it in this regard or not, but uh, 2020 is the first year of a new decade, but uh, 2020 is also a leap year. Did you know that? And a leap year is one in which we add a day, and that day will make it 366 days instead of 365 and uh, that day is added to the uh, end of the month of February. There'll be 29 days in February instead of 28 uh, days this time around. So this next year, 2020, we will have 12 months. We'll have 52 weeks, but we'll have 366 days, which means we'll have 8,784 hours. We'll have 527,040 minutes. We will have... 31,322,400 seconds. I bet you couldn't have figured that out on your own, could you? But anyway, the fact of the matter is, that sounds like a lot of time. And I would ask you this morning, what are you going to do with all that time? Hmm? Now, the fact of the matter is, it really isn't all that much time. Uh, you see, um, the psalmist wrote in Psalm 39 and verse 4, Lord, remind me how brief my time on earth will be. Remind me that my days are numbered, how fleeting my life is. And again, in the 100, excuse me, the 90th Psalm in verse 10, the psalmist says, 70 years are given to us, some even 80, but even the best years are filled with pain and trouble, and soon they disappear and we fly away. It would appear, at least a few of us here this morning are living on borrowed time. Isn't that right? I mean, I, I certainly am. Uh, a few years ago, they came up with a clock that um, demonstrates how much time we have left. It was based on 75 years for men. It was based on 80 years for women. It sold for $99.95. I'm not sure whether that's significant. But anyway, according to that clock, I am well overdue. <laughs> but the problem is... Uh, we don't have the promise of tomorrow. Great set of teens down here. I appreciate being right up here on the front row. But you know, even as a teenager, we don't have the promise of tomorrow. As a child, we don't have the promise of tomorrow. But assuming that you're granted another year of life, what are you going to do with it? That's the question today. What are you going to do with it? Well, the Apostle Paul lays out for us in our text a wonderful, wonderful plan, a plan of action. It's found in Philippians chapter uh, 3, verses 8 through 14. And I'm going to read that for us out of the New Living Translation. But I'm going to ask that you stand with me out of respect for the Word of God as I read. Again, Philippians chapter 3, beginning with verse 8. The Apostle Paul writes, Yes, everything else is worthless when compared with the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For His sake, I have discarded everything else, counting it all as garbage, so that I could gain Christ and become one with Him. 
I no longer count on my own righteousness through obeying the law. Now again, that's significant. I no longer count on my own righteousness through obeying the law. Rather, I become righteous through faith in Christ. For God's way of making us right, now get this, God's way of making us right with himself depends on faith. And I want to know Christ and experience the mighty power that raised him from the dead. I want to suffer with him, sharing in his death, so that one way or another I will experience the resurrection from the dead. He continues, now listen, I don't mean to say that I've already achieved these things or that I've already reached perfection, but I press on. I press on to possess that perfection for which Christ Jesus first possessed me. No, dear brothers and sisters, I have not achieved it. I've not achieved it. But I focus on this one thing. Forgetting the past and looking forward to what lies ahead, I press on to teach, to reach the end of the race and receive the heavenly prize for which God, through Christ Jesus, is calling us. May God bless the reading of his word. Go ahead and be seated, please. There are three words that I want to call to your attention this morning. And though these words are not found in the Philippians text that we've read, the idea, the principle of each word is there. These are the three words. Repent, resolve, and remember. Would you say those three words with me? Repent, resolve, and remember. Let's look at them. To press on spiritually in 2020, we must repent. Now, the fact of the matter is no one was ever saved without repentance. Repentance is a change of heart by which we're sorry for our sins, but not just sorry, sorry enough that we want to do something about it. Oh, yes, we're justified by faith. Our text makes that very, very clear, not by works. But repentance is what causes us to trust in Jesus in the first place, to make Jesus Lord of our life, to turn from sin and turn to the Savior. And without such repentance, a person cannot and will not be saved. Indeed, Jesus said it this way in Luke 13 and verse 5. He said, unless you repent, you will perish too. But then on the day of Pentecost, when the apostle Peter, 50 days after Jesus' resurrection, when he stood up and he preached to thousands of people there in the city of Jerusalem, he preached the gospel of Jesus Christ, his death, his burial, his resurrection. And this primarily Jewish crowd came to believe that Jesus was the Messiah. And when they understood that he was the Messiah, in Acts 2 and verse 37, the crowd shouted out, brothers, what should we do? And then in verse 38, the apostle Peter, by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, said, each of you must, what? Repent of your sins and turn to God and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and then you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And so this morning, if you never believed on the Lord, you've never repented of your sin, you've never been baptized into Christ, what are you waiting for? I mean, today can be that day, the day of salvation. But this morning, I realize that most of you here are already believers, and I want you to understand that there is a repentance for Christians as well. And just as repentance is a part of coming into a right relationship with the Lord, repentance is also a part of maintaining fellowship with God, and thus a right relationship with God. I'm going to ask you several questions this morning, and I really hope you'll seriously consider them in your own personal circumstance. 
Let me ask you this. Suppose, suppose you could change anything about yourself. Are you with me? You could, you could change anything about yourself. What, what, what would it be? Where, where would you start? Well, the fact of the matter is some of us would start on the outside, wouldn't we? <laughs> I mean, if we're honest about it, would we be skinnier, uh, taller, shorter, uh, better looking? Uh, I mean, Craig doesn't need to do that because, you know, he's already so handsome and so on and so forth. But, but what would your change be? What, what would you change about yourself? Would it be your, your eyes, your hair, your teeth, your legs, your bulges? Well, that's getting way too personal. But anyway, as hard as it might be to change on the outside, I think for most of us, it's far more difficult to change on the inside, is it not? So what would you change about yourself on the inside? Uh, would it be, um, would it be a, 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 an, imp, a, an impatient spirit? Would it be a critical tongue? What would it be? Um, envy of those about you? Is that what you would change? A spirit of discontentment, perhaps? Uh, resentment towards someone in your life? Lustful thoughts? that you just seemingly can't conquer? Uh, a materialistic obsession, perhaps that's it. Or a guilty conscience, or, or over, overbearing stubbornness, is, is that what it would be? A judgmental and legalistic spirit, perhaps that would be it. A, a quick temper, um, a struggle with discouragement, an ungrateful spirit. Dishonesty. I mean, the list could go on and on and on, couldn't it? We can't begin to list all the things that perhaps need to change in your life. And while all these things that I've mentioned are displeasing to God, must need to be repented of, the fact is those things also impact us. They rob us of the spirit of joy, don't they? Remember King David, he was living in sin, and he cried out in Psalm 51 and verse 12, Restore to me the joy of your salvation and make me willing to obey you. See, sin robs the Christian of joy. Uh, and repentance is the first step in reclaiming that joy. Think for just a moment about Simon Peter. Simon Peter was Jesus' right-hand man, wasn't he? Simon Peter is the guy that said, Everybody else may forsake you, but I would never forsake you, Lord. But when the time of testing came, that wasn't the case, was it? As a matter of fact, you remember that night in which Peter, after Jesus' arrest, denied that he even knew Jesus. And the third time, he even cursed and he swore to back it up. You think Peter was happy? <laughs> you remember the text? It says that Peter went out and he what? He wept bitterly. There was no joy in his life until he repented and spiritually turned back to the Lord and pledged his life in devotion and service. As a matter of fact, so much so that he lived the rest of his life for the Lord and even died a martyr's death because of his love for the Lord. Maybe, maybe there's some sin in your life that's standing between you and God. I want to urge you this morning to repent of it, whatever it is, and then confess it. Forsake it. And here's the promise of God's word. <laughs> this is beautiful. 1 John 1, verses 8 and 9. If we claim we have no sin, we're only fooling ourselves and not living in the truth. But 
If we confess our sins to him, he is faithful and just to forgive us from all wickedness. By the way, sin isn't always something we do. We usually think of it in those terms, but Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who who stood against the evils of the Nazi regime in, in Germany, said, and I quote him, silence in the face of evil. Now listen, silence in the face of evil is evil itself. God will not hold us guiltless. There's a lot of things going on in the world today where it's just easier for us as Christians to keep quiet. But silence in itself is evil. It was Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. who rightly said, we'll have to repent in this generation not merely for the hateful words and actions of bad people, but for the appalling silence of good people. Oh, I wish I could camp on that for a while. Martin Luther King, of course, was speaking in the context of racism. But the fact of the matter is, there's a lot of things going on in our world today where a lot of us as Christians just keep our mouths shut. It's easier that way. Don't have to argue with anybody. We don't have to, uh, we don't have to face the, the repercussions of standing up for Christ and standing up for morality. So whether sins of commission, things we've done, thoughts we've had, attitudes we've had, or the sins of omission, things we should have done but have not done. Repentance is where we need to start. So as we press on into 2020, please, I urge you, to identify those specific areas of your life in which repentance needs to take place. But there's a second step. We must also, as we press on into 2020, we must also resolve. Now, making New Year's resolutions has become a traditional thing, hasn't it? Something almost everybody does. But unfortunately, many of those resolutions we make are rather frivolous in nature. And not only frivolous, they're easily forgotten. But I'm here to tell you that making vows to God is a good thing. As a matter of fact, um, the Word of God says in Psalm 76 and verse 11, make vows to the Lord your God and keep them. See, that's the key, isn't it? And keep them. And then in Psalm 61 and verse 8, we read, I will sing praises to your name forever as I fulfill my vows each day. Not good enough to make vows to God unless we keep them. And we have many examples in the Bible of great biblical personalities who made vows to God, made resolutions before God, and who kept them. I was reading just this morning in my devotions, again from Daniel. Daniel was a young boy, you remember, when he was taken away captive to the land of Babylon. And uh, Daniel, as a young boy, made a vow to God. There were certain, in the Old Testament, certain dietary laws the follower of the Lord was supposed to uh, take very seriously. But in Babylon, the king had a whole different um, uh, diet that he prescribed for those that he had brought there. And Daniel had a choice to make, and Daniel made a resolution that he would not defile himself. He would not follow the king's commandments in regard to his diet, but he would follow the diet that God had prescribed. He was supposed to eat and drink only that which the king commanded, but Even though he knew it might bring the wrath of God, excuse me, the wrath of the king down upon him, even though it might harm him from a physical standpoint, he was faithful to God's law. Faithful there in Babylon for some 70 years. And by the way, don't have the time to go in this, but instead of experiencing the wrath of God, 
He ended up experiencing the favor of uh, the wrath of, of uh, the king, I should say. He experienced the favor of the king. And Daniel won the respect of the king because he stood up for something. And he rose to be one of the great men in the kingdom. Now, now let's be honest. Many of us, were we in Daniel's situation, we would basically have said that same old thing that we've heard again and again. When in Rome, what? Do as the Romans do. That's the easy thing to do. Just go along with society. Just go along with whatever's popular. But not Daniel. He refused to defile himself. Why don't you resolve? Then in 2020, you will not defile yourself. That regardless of what the world does, regardless of what the world says, regardless of what is popular, you're going to do what the Lord himself says. See, the church has to be in Babylon, but we don't have to be of Babylon. Actually, there are just three responses we can make to society about us. Number one, we can assimilate the secular culture. And it may be judgmental on my part, but it seems to me that many, if not most, professing Christians are doing just that. You can't tell a lot of difference between the Christian and his unsaved neighbor. So that's number one. You can assimilate the secular culture, become like everyone else. Number two, you can isolate from the secular culture. Go find your monastery someplace. Separate yourself from the world. Have nothing to do with the world. Or number three, you can engage the secular culture in light of the gospel. And frankly, that's the only legitimate choice for a Christian to make. Well, Another example in the Old Testament was Jacob. <laughs> Jacob, who, who resolved to bring the tithe to the Lord. Do you remember this story? Initially, he sinned against his father Isaac, against his brother Esau, and then he ran away from home. First night out on the road, he found a place to, to um, put up his tent, hadn't brought a pillow along, and so the Bible talks about how he selected a stone and used it as his pillow. And he had a dream that night. I think I would have had a nightmare that night if I was sleeping with a stone as my pillow. But he had this dream. Remember the Jacob's ladder and the angels ascending and descending? And when he awoke out of that sleep, he made a vow to God. You remember what it was? Quite interesting. He made a vow. He said, if you will go with me, Lord, if you will go with me, I will live for you and I will give one-tenth of all that I shall earn. And you know what? God blessed him for it. Remember what Jesus said when he said, seek first the kingdom of God above all else and live righteously. And he, God, will give you everything you need, Matthew 6, 33. Let me suggest, let me urge you that by faith in 2020, you resolve to be at least, at least a tither. To by faith put the Lord first in the management of your money, of your income. I recently learned something that was really disappointing to me. Just a couple of weeks ago, I, I uh, ran across this. The average American today gives 1.78% of their income to charitable causes. 1.78%. Now, that's across the board, anybody and everybody, and that's sad in itself. But the Christians are much better, right? No, unfortunately, the average isn't much better, as a matter of fact. The average Christian, the average professing Christian in America gives 2.3% of their income to the Lord's work. 2.3%. I'm here to tell you this morning that I failed the Lord in many ways. I'm not going to list them for you, but there's plenty of ways in which I failed the Lord. But I can honestly say that in my 76 years of life, I have never received a penny that I haven't given at least a tithe of it back to the Lord. 
you know what? The Lord's been so good to me over these years, and he's always met my needs and far more than my needs. Furthermore, as Christians, we're not limited to the tithe. That's Old Testament. That's legalistic. We are free when we count our blessings and understand how blessed we are to give way above and beyond the tithe. As a matter of fact, um, I love 2 Corinthians 9 and verse 7 where Paul said, you must each decide in your heart how much to give. And don't give reluctantly or in response to pressure for God loves a person who gives cheerfully. In other words, when we count our blessings, we just want to give back to God as a thanksgiving to God for all that he's done for us. And then in verse 8, and God will generously provide for all you need, and then you will always have everything you need and plenty left over to share with others. Wow, that's God's promise. And I have found him throughout my life that he's faithful and true to that. One other example, think about David. David made a resolution And uh, his resolution (laughs) was to read the Bible and to adopt it as his standard for life. Now, some of you are saying, read the Bible. They didn't have the New Testament. No, they didn't. They didn't have all the Old Testament in David's day. But he resolved to read God's word that God had revealed at that point in time. Psalm 119. It's the longest chapter in all the Bible. And the whole chapter is just filled with great truth. But let me read for you, starting with verse 9. Listen to this. Very practical stuff. How can a young person stay pure? Well, that's a great question, isn't it? How can a young person stay pure? By obeying your word. I've tried hard to find you. Don't let me wander from your commands. I've hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. I praise you, O God. Teach me your decrees. I've recited aloud all the regulations you've given us. I've rejoiced in your laws as much as in riches. I will study your commandments and reflect on your ways. I will delight in your decrees and not forget your word. In other words, I'll write it on my heart. I'll memorize your word. I'll live according to your word. Let me tell you something. If all of us here this morning would resolve in our heart to study the Word of God, what a difference it would make. What a difference it would make in your life if you did the things that David, David resolved to do, to meditate on God's Word each day, to obey the Word of God, to love the Word of God, and never forget the Word. Again, to write it on your heart, to memorize Scripture David also made a reservation, a reservation, a resolution about prayer. Over in Psalm 116 and verse 2, he said, Because he, that is God, because God bends down to listen, I will pray as long as I have breath. Let me make a practical suggestion to you this morning. Still got plenty of time to do this in preparation for 2020. Choose a specific time and place. Okay, now you don't have to do this, but it'll really help you to be faithful. Choose a specific time and place. Make that your holy place, if you will. And then get a modern, understandable Bible. Now, I was raised on the King James. I love the King James, but we don't talk that way anymore. So you get you a a modern, understandable Bible. And uh, get a reading plan for the year. I would urge you to read through the whole Bible. It's not all that difficult, not as difficult as you may think it would be to have a reading plan where you read so much out of the Old Testament, so much out of the Psalms, so much out of the Proverbs, so much out of the New Testament. Go online. There are all kinds of reading plans that are available to you there. And read through the Bible, or at least, at the very least, read through the New Testament this next year. And then, then begin a prayer journal. I mean, written out, begin a prayer journal in which you make an outline for your prayer life. 
I have found the acronym ACTS to be very helpful. A for adoration, C for confession, T for thanksgiving, and S for supplication. I use that every day as my outline for prayer. First of all, adoring the Lord, worshiping and praising the Lord, and then confessing my own sins and my own weaknesses, and then going through the things for which I'm thankful, and finally I've got a long prayer list. Do all this on my computer, by the way. And not only do I have that list before me, but I can also note the way God has answered those prayers as I go along and be faithful in that in this new year. I urge you to do that. It will change your life if you're not already doing that. Resolve to make Bible study and prayer a vital part of your life. See, what I'm really suggesting is give God your best in 2020. And not, not your good, not better than average. I'm urging you to give God your best now, God didn't get a lot when he got me. And I don't say that with some false modesty. I just know it's true. There are far better preachers than I am, and I, I, I admire so many of them. There's, there's far better Bible students than I am. There's far better pastors than I've ever been, far better husbands and, and fathers and, and friends. But it's amazing what God can do with whatever you have. I'm... A, I've just completed a rough draft for a, a, a new book. I'm calling it Ordinary because I, I know that in many ways my life, my life, my, my life in the flesh has only been ordinary. But again, God doesn't need much. He just needs what you have. <laughs> I mean, he, five loaves and two little fish. What did he do? He fed thousands of people with that. See, God can use whoever you are and whatever you have. And when God gives, when God gets your best, it motivates others to want to do the same too. Did you know that? I don't know if you're familiar with the name David Brainerd. Brainerd lived back in the 1700s and he was a missionary to the American Indians, primarily on the East Coast, worked among the Delaware Indians. He literally worked himself to death. He was only 29 years of age when he died. But during his years of ministry among the Indians, he, he kept a prayer journal, a prayer diary, still available, it's in print. And... Um, a guy named William Carey read that diary. And it inspired him to give his life as a missionary. And he went to the country of India. And there he served the Lord for the remainder of his years and led thousands of people to Christ. Another guy named Henry Martin read the diary of Brainerd. And he too resolved to give his life in missions. He too went to India and also led thousands of Christ. Peyton read the diary of Brainerd began a life of prayer. Listen to this. Peyton began a life of prayer that nearly eclipsed that of Brainerd. As a matter of fact, this sounds very difficult to believe, but it's a historical fact. Where, where he knelt each day in prayer, grooves were worn in the floor where he knelt, where his knees touched the floor. Imagine that. Um, John Wesley was addressing a conference in England in which he asked the question, what can be done to revive the work of the Lord where it has decayed? And he answered that in his opinion, um, he said that every preacher should read the life and diary of David Brainerd. By the way, Brainerd was engaged to be married to the daughter of the great preacher Jonathan Edwards, who brought revival especially to uh, the New England states and so on and so forth. And he actually died in Jonathan Edwards' home because he went through a serious long-term illness. And, and, and Edward said, I praise God that in his providence David should die in my house so that I might hear the prayers and be inspired by his example. 
I'm telling you, folks, no one knows just how many people seeing your best in devotion to the Lord will resolve to give their best as well. I have a sermon. Craig, I almost chose to preach it today called How to Fire the Preacher. And then I thought too many people might misunderstand and take it seriously, and that wouldn't be a good thing. Um, so um, uh, you've got a wonderful pastor here, and you want to hang on to him. Uh, but I, I like what the old Pentecostal preacher used to say when he said, instead of God called me to heal the sick and raise the dead and cast out devils, got his tongue all tangled up like I still do quite often, and he fairly shouted out, God called me to heal the dead, <coughs> cast out the sick, and raise the devil. <laughs> and and uh, let me tell you, if some preachers would raise more devil on Sunday morning, there'd be less devil raising on Saturday night. Amen? That's, that's the truth. But here's a very abbreviated form of that sermon. If you want to fire the preacher, first of all, pray for him. You have no idea the sort of challenges your pastor goes through every week, every day. Number two, get excited about the Lord. Unashamedly, I'm a St. Louis Cardinal fan and a uh, IU Hoosiers fan. And uh, I love to go to St. Louis. I love to go down to Bloomington. And when I'm there, I've shot my fool head off. I got to tell you, I cheer, I clap, I stand up, I just go nuts. But you know what? If I was the only one at Bush Stadium who was doing that, or I was the only one in assembly hall that was doing that, I would soon lose my excitement. You know, after a while, I'd think, what is wrong with me that I'm doing all this? And I got to tell you, I've been in a lot of churches. I've preached in hundreds of churches over the years. And, and the fact of the matter is, there's a lot of churches that are deader than a doornail. <laughs> so if you want... You want to fire your preacher, fire him up, that is, then you, you praise the Lord and you do it outwardly and you let people know that you love the Lord. And then number three is be faithful in attendance. First of all, because the Lord expects it. Do you know that? Hebrews 10 and verse 25 indicates we're not to neglect our meeting together as is the manner of some. But not just because the Lord expects it, also out of respect for your pastor. You have no idea how many hours he puts in on the sermons that he prepares to share with you the teaching of the Word of God. And uh, then it's raining outside, so you don't show up, or you just aren't feeling the best, so you don't. It, it would be like uh, some of you ladies inviting my wife on over for dinner next Friday night, and you work all week to prepare, and, and my goodness, you make sure the house is immaculate, and, and you, uh, you put the dining room table in, in order, and, and you've prepared a wonderful dessert ahead of time, and now you've got the main course, and 30 minutes before we're supposed to be there, I give you a call and say, you know what, well, we've decided we're just going to stay home tonight. Would you be insulted by that? Boy, you should be, I'm, I, I got to tell you. Well, I got to move on. Number four, support the program of the local church. Support the program. If you want to fire your preacher, support the program. I recently was guest speaker in a church where, where I had one lady who came up to me after the service and she said to me, uh, Pastor John, I wish you were our pastor because you tell us what we need to hear and not necessarily what we want to hear. And then there were three or four more people came up to me after that same service and they said basically the same thing. Let me tell you something, if the truth is being compromised, if people aren't being pointed to Jesus, and uh, if the Bible is not being preached as the infallible word of God, then there should be a change in the pulpit. Either that or you should find another church. But the great evangelist Sam Jones once said, when I started preaching, I was, I was afraid that I'd make someone mad. He said, now I'm afraid I won't make someone mad. And I appreciate what he had to say in that regard. Number five is to live a separated life. We've already talked about Daniel doing that, so we won't talk more right now. Number six, be a witness for Christ. Nothing thrills a pastor more than seeing people come to Christ. And uh, so if you want to fire up your preacher, uh, 
Uh, you bring visitors with you. You speak to your neighbors about Christ. You share your testimony. You fulfill the Great Commission. And then, number seven, just love one another. Love one another. That, there's the Great Commission, but there's also the Great Commandment where Jesus says we're to love God with all our heart, soul, and mind, and, and to love one another. Love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus put it this way in John 13 and verse 35, love each other. Just as I've loved you, you should love each other. Your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. You know what? One reason a lot of people in the world never come to Christ is because they know a lot of Christians. And they know how Christians sometimes backbite and gossip and, and fight and feud and so on and so forth. I, I, I had an email from a missionary friend of mine recently that I've known well over the years. And he talked about how in his area, he was rejoicing. He said, after 20 years of division, there's folks that have come back together. And you know what they divided over? They divided over raising hands in worship. <laughs> Something that's biblical in the first place. But they divided over it. Some were for it and some were against it. And then I was telling another missionary just this past week that story. And uh, she said, you know what? She said, we just had the same sort of a fight, but it was over clapping in church. <laughs> Again, something that's found in Scripture, something that's very biblical. But we fuss over the silliest things when the world's dying and lost and going to hell. God, forgive us of our priorities or our mispriorities. And then Paul says in Ephesians 4.32, be kind to each other, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, just as God through Christ has forgiven you. You resolve to do those seven things, and I guarantee you, fire up your preacher and you'll never need to fire him. Well, finally, don't you love that word? It doesn't mean a thing when a, preach, when a preacher says it, but at least it gives you hope, doesn't it? <laughs> and finally, we must remember. We must remember. Now, I know that sounds contradictory to our text. The text says forgetting the past and looking forward to what lies ahead. But I, I'm here to tell you there are certain things we must never forget, certain things we must always remember. We must, we must remember that we can never repay Christ for all he's done for us. That's most basic of all. What's he done? Well, he knew that you and I were sinners, that the wages of sin is death, not just physical death, spiritual death, eternal death, hell itself. But he took your place and mine upon the cross of Calvary, died a death he did not deserve to die, that you might enjoy life eternal that you and I don't deserve. He reached down, he lifted you up. He, he placed a song in your heart. He placed your feet upon the solid rock of ages. And your hope for the future, hear me now on this. This is just basic. Your hope for the future is centered on Jesus, God's son and man's only savior. My friend, if you're saved, if you're going to heaven instead of hell, it won't be because of your goodness. It won't be because of your righteousness. It won't be because of your effort. It will be because of his incredible mercy and his amazing grace. And if you had a thousand lives to live, you could never begin to repay him for all that he's done for you. But remember, the gospel is not what we can do for Jesus. The gospel is what Jesus has already done for us. Oh, we must also remember that the greatest happiness and meaning in life are also found by allowing Jesus Christ to form us into the person he intends for us to be. Back to our text in Philippians uh, there in Philippians 3 and verse, verse 10, Paul says, I want to know Christ and experience the mighty power that raised him from the dead. And then in verse 12, I don't mean to say, now, now listen to this. This is, I really am coming to a close here. I don't mean to say that I have already achieved these things or that I've already reached perfection. 
But I press on. I press on. I press on to possess that perfection for which Christ Jesus first possessed me. Back in the year 1464, there was a sculptor named Rossellini who was commissioned to work on a huge piece of marble, huge piece of marble. And his intention was to produce a magnificent sculpture of an Old Testament prophet. And then that magnificent sculpture would be displayed in a cathedral there in Florence, Italy. He labored for two solid years on that piece of marble and finally gave up. Then in 1476, uh, Antonio uh, Rosalino started to work on that same piece of marble. And in time, he abandoned it as well. Several years later, in 1501, a 26-year-old sculptor that perhaps you've heard of named Michelangelo was offered a considerable amount of money to uh, produce something worthwhile from that enormous piece of marble, which by now was thought of as a joke. As a matter of fact, it was referred to as the giant, and it was said derisively. As he began his work, um, Michelangelo immediately saw a major flaw near the bottom of that piece of marble that had stymied the other sculptures. And he, he, he decided he would turn that, um, that part of the stone, that flaw, he would turn it into a broken tree stump that in turn would support the right leg of the statue. And here you see a, a, a picture of that as it exists to this day. He worked on that marble for four more years, four years on that piece of marble until he produced the incomparable David. And I think we have a picture of the torso of David here. 17 feet tall, stands on display in Florence where today people come from all over the world. You have to buy tickets ahead of time just to be able to get in. The demand is so great. People come to see one of the greatest works of art ever produced. It has been said there's no statue more perfect. I would show you the entire statue, but it's anatomically correct, and I didn't want some of you ladies to faint right here in church this morning. But how did he do it? How did Michelangelo take a piece of marble that other great sculptors had given up on and form this incredible piece of art? Well, here are Michelangelo's words, translated into English. He said, in every block of marble, I see a statue as plain as though it stood before me, shaped and perfect in attitude and action. I have, listen now, I have only to hew away the rough walls that imprison the lovely apparition to reveal it to other eyes as mine see it. Or to put it more simply, he said, I cut away everything that didn't look like David. And voila, here is the statue. Now, I want you in these closing moments to apply that to your spiritual life. Paul indicates in our text that we are all works in progress. You hear me? You listening? You identify with this? We're all works in progress. We're not finished. We're not glorified. We're not perfected. We're not completed. We're all under construction. And you know what? Um, a construction zone is usually a very noisy and messy place. While the hammering and the sawing continue, it's hard to even imagine the final result, what it will be. But when it comes to our Christian life, the great thing is we already have a model. <laughs> we already have a model. We have an example. Uh, Paul says, I press on to possess the perfection for which Christ Jesus first possessed me. 
He says, forgetting the past and looking forward to what lies ahead, I press on to reach the end of the race and receive the heavenly prize for which God through Christ Jesus is calling us. Would you bow your head for a moment and close your eyes, every head bowed, every eye closed. Please take this seriously. In what areas do you need to press on in 2020? What do you need to repent of? Surely there must be some specific things that come to mind. What resolutions do you need to make? What do you need to resolve today to do that you might become more and more like Jesus, that more and more of that rough exterior might be taken away? And yes, what do you need to remember today? Most basic of all, that our salvation is found in Christ Jesus alone. I want to ask that we, just as our keyboardist is playing quietly in the background, I'm just going to ask you to take a minute or two and answer those questions for yourself this morning. And then I'll pray. We'll stand and sing and have a time of commitment. Holy Spirit, convict us in these areas of our lives of the sins of which we need to repent. May that repentance be genuine today. Convict us, Lord, of the resolutions we need to make in our lives for this coming new year, this coming decade, if Christ carries his return. Father, resolutions that would please you, resolutions that would change our lives, resolutions that would change this church for the good, for the better, for the best. And Father, in it all, help us never to forget that our salvation is based not in our own effort, but it's in your marvelous grace. The salvation is provided through Christ and our justification by faith in him. Lord, help us this day to make the decisions you would have us to make the glory of Christ and the betterment of your church on earth. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Let's stand together. If you need to respond today in a public way, the pastor will be here. I believe we have prayer counselors that would come. If you'd come right now, if you need to respond in a public way, maybe you just need to come and make this platform an altar where you do some business with God. Then you come right now. Worthy of all the praise we could